Comedy can be defined as doing the same thing over and over while expecting a different result. Our guest today argues that the United States approach to some defense and intelligence issues are indeed insane. These problems go back generations as American leaders didn't realize quickly enough that the power structure formed during the Cold War was no longer effective in an increasingly multilateral world influenced by digital technology and riddled with ethno-secretarian conflict. Can the U.S. break out of our comfortable and at times, Jane Harmon argues, arrogant position to take steps towards a safer, safer future? Good afternoon and welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program today features Jane Harmon, Distinguished Fellow and President Emerita of the Wilson Center, joined in conversation by veteran journalist Lee Cullum. This is the final program of the 2021 International Perspectives Series, which the Council has been hosting in partnership with the American Jewish Committee of Dallas for over 20 years, identifying critical issues in U.S. foreign policy and bringing them home to North Texas. You can purchase your copies of Jane's book, Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe, at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner. Our audience receives a 10% discount from the Interabang Books online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember, that discount code is good for any of the books in your online cart, not just Jane's book. The Council is incredibly grateful to all of its supporters. The 2021 International Perspective Series is generously sponsored by our friends at Haynes & Boone. Special thanks to our Council Board Member, Larry Paschal, for your continued leadership and support of our mission. I'd also like to remind everyone that you, too, can sponsor a program and get in touch with Alana Buenrostro at 956 4661149 about sponsorship opportunities. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. And on that note, we, along with you, are craving connectivity and want to be in person. We just want to be sure that it's safe to do so. We are moving in the direction of being in person and there will be more news on that shortly so please stay tuned on our newsletters and on our website and we'll be with you in person as soon as we can and now i'd like to welcome assistant regional director of ajc dallas amy berger to say a few words we thank the AJC for their continued partnership and support of this series, and I look forward to what our two organizations can do together. And with that, Amy, I'll give it to you, and thanks very much. Thank you, Liz. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here today. As mentioned, I am Amy Berger, American Jewish Committee, Dallas Regional Office Assistant Director. AJC is a 114-year-old global advocacy organization with the mission to enhance the well-being of the Jewish people in Israel and to advance human rights and democratic values in the U.S. and around the world. One of the key components of AJC's work that sets us apart is our work in the international space and our access to global leaders. That shared value of global citizenship has made the AJC World Affairs Council partnership such a strong match. 
On behalf of AJC, we are proud to partner with the World Affairs Council and Greater Dallas Fort Worth in presenting the International Perspective Series. We are especially pleased in presenting today's program as Ms. Harmon is no stranger to AJC. She participated in AJC's Project Interchange Initiative that brings diverse delegations of global thought leaders to Israel to experience the country firsthand. And while not all of us are traveling yet, I would like to invite you to AJC's annual global forum, which will be taking place virtually again this year. We just began announcing our confirmed speakers. Among those, Israeli President Ruben Rivlin, Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, Louis Amagro, Secretary General of the Organization of American States, and Dr. Amin Shahid, UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief. Please save the dates of June 6th through 9th for four days of virtual global advocacy. Please visit AJC.org for more information, as well as checking with our social media sites, including the AJC Dallas Facebook page for local happenings. I would like to now turn it over to Larry Pascal, Chair of the America's Practice Group and Co-Chair of the International Practice Group for Haynes and Dune. Thank you all. Larry? Yes, thank you so much, Amy. Our guest today is an internationally recognized authority on US and international security and foreign relations. A native of Los Angeles, Jane Harmon served nine terms in the US House of Representatives and sat on all the major House security committees during her tenure. She then left Congress in February 2011 to join the Woodrow Wilson Center as its first female director, president, and CEO. For those not familiar with the Woodrow Wilson Center, it was chartered by Congress in 1968 as the official memorial to President Woodrow Wilson and serves today as one of this country's key nonpartisan non policy forums for tackling global issues through independent research and open dialogue. Ms. Harmon has impressive academic credentials to match her professional accomplishments. She is a magna cum laude graduate of Smith College and Harvard Law School. Prior to serving in Congress, she worked as staff director of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights, Deputy, Deputy Cap Cabinet Secretary to President Jimmy Carter, Special Counsel to the Department of Defense, and worked in private law practice. She now serves in positions on nearly a dozen governmental and non-governmental advisory boards and commissions. Ms. Harmon is here to discuss her new book, Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe. As, as Liz alluded to in Insanity Defense, she chronicles our, how four administrations have failed to confront some of our toughest national security policy issues and suggest achievable solutions that can move us towards a safer future. Joining us to moderate this conversation is Dallas's very own Lee Cullum, a journalist at Public Media of North Texas and senior fellow at the John Tower Center for Public Policy and International Affairs at Southern Methodist University. Ms. Cullum is host of CEO, the North Texas Public Broadcasting Monthly Series of Interviews with North Texas Business Leaders that airs on KER television and radio. She is also a regular commentator on PBS's NewsHour and NPR's All Things Considered, as well as an editorial writer for the Dallas Morning News. She has also been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations for a decade. 
currently serves on the board of the American Security Project in Washington and is a member of the Trilateral Commission and the Inter-American Dialogue, an organization I am also pleased to serve on. I know we are in for a fascinating conversation today. Please take it away, Lee. Thank you very much, Larry and Jane. Very good to see you. Uh, I think we were together on a Zoom call earlier this week, and it was not for attribution, but maybe you won't mind my attributing to you something I found very interesting. You said with real conviction, you have not given up on the two-state solution uh, for the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, tell me your, your views about that, and why do you hold to this, to this view, to this belief? It's nice to see you again, Lee, uh, although you. virtually, and yes. uh, many others. I think that uh, uh, this group is uh, enormously sophisticated, and I was listening to who some of your future speakers are. Uh, and uh, you mentioned Peter Baker uh, interviewing uh, someone. Peter Baker wrote a book recently, uh, Peter Baker and his wife, uh, Susan Glasser, on James Baker uh, at the Wilson Center. And when I was interviewing them, about the book, I also talked Jim Baker into participating, and it was especially memorable uh, to have him involved. He was once on the board of the Wilson Center as well. But at any rate, it's great to be uh, on this Zoom. I earlier today Zoomed into the grandparents meeting of one of my grandkids' kindergarten classes, and that was bittersweet because I would much rather have been there hugging her, uh, but I'll try my best to hug all of you uh, virtually. So. Uh, what do I think about what's been going on with uh, Israel and uh, Palestine? It troubles me greatly. Uh, like some of you on this call, I'm sure, uh, I'm the daughter of a, of a man who grew up in Nazi Germany, uh, wore the yellow star, was in the last class that Jews could graduate, were permitted to graduate from medical school and made his way to the United States as a refugee in 1935. And growing up, he used to say, you know, that uh, he, he lived behind a little store that his widowed mother ran and he was an only child. He said, I hoped I could escape to France. I never dreamed I would make it to the United States and have two children, one of whom uh, is a successful medical doctor as my father was, and the other of whom serves in the United States Congress. And you know, you say that and then you go, uh, uh, what, what a legacy to live up to. So what do I think about this? I think it's, it, it encapsulates the title of my book, Insanity Defense. We keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And it depends how you count. This is number three, number four, number 400 skirmish. This one was very serious between Israel and uh, uh, Gaza. Um, Hamas was the bad actor here, not the Palestinian Authority, which has virtually no authority over Gaza, but nonetheless, um, a ceasefire is a good thing. I commend President Biden for the effort he made along with the uh, Egyptians and others to get the ceasefire. But I'm saying that uh, how long will it hold? Hopefully forever, definitely not likely uh, forever. Uh, what do I think has to happen now? Well, I, as I said, uh, I remember where we were, Lee, that the people on the ground have to want the two-state solution and peace as much as we do. We can't impose it on them, it won't work. Uh, we could wish for better leadership on the ground. This is not, not, not criti critical of any particular person, but I think uh, it would be a very good thing uh, to have leaders uh, both of the Palestinian Authority and of Israel 
who think that they can build the right coalitions to achieve uh, a more lasting peace, which to me is the two-state solution. And uh, I'd love to get there from here. And I think the neighborhood can help more than it has now that Sunni Arab states have made uh, peace with and recognized uh, the existence of Israel publicly. I think they could push in the same direction. And surely Egypt and Jordan are pushing in that direction. And just maybe, and Turkey too, apparently. And so maybe uh, we'll have an all-in uh, group that will reach a place uh, where we don't have to say this is insanity once more. You made the point that the business community in Israel does favor the two-state solution, the mm -hmm. political uh, crowd, not necessarily so. Yes, I did. Uh, I know many in the business community in Israel, and many of them have relationships with Palestinians and have cross-border uh, activity. And when they're polled, in fact, there's an organization of them uh, that has been more supportive of the two-state solution for a long time. What's hard is that some of the public, not just the political class, uh, but, but average folks uh, are scared. And the fear, car, the fear card has been played uh, brilliantly. And when people are afraid, uh, they fall back into uh, uh, the old traditional reactions rather than think more creatively about what a better uh, strategy and outcome could be. Well, speaking of the old traditional ways, you make the point quite emphatically in your book from the very beginning that American intelligence, and you know a lot about it, has been operating according to a 1947 model put in place after World War II. They are operating in an analog way in a digital world. What's going on? Why can't we update the intelligence community? Well, actually, we did. Um, the, the point did. I made in the, in the book is that we had two massive intelligence failures. Uh, one was on 9-11, obviously, despite the prediction of a number of groups, I was in one called the National Commission on Terrorism, that we would or could face a major attack on US uh, soil. But the other intelligence failure was the National Intelligence Estimate on Weapons of Mass Destruction in Iraq, which was wrong based on bad intelligence. So after that, a hearty little group, which I was in, uh, a bipartisan, bicameral group uh, set about to reorganize the intelligence community, which I pointed out was set up in 1947. Uh, and we passed in 2004 uh, a law which created the uh, Director of National Intelligence, the DNI, who is the commander. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Joint commander across 16 intelligence agencies. And finally, uh, we coordinate how satellites are tasked and we coordinate how uh, national intelligence estimates are produced and they're much better. Well, there were problems initially with the National Intelligence Director. Uh, there were four in five years, beginning with John Negroponte, going down to James Clapper. They kept coming and going. Uh, your bill originally called for the director to have a lot of control over the budgets of these 15 
uh, operations that are going on uh, in, the, in the Department of Defense, about eight there, seven in other agencies. That got watered down, shall we say, to guidance, lots of luck with guidance. Uh, has, has the situation improved? I mean, we seem to have a little more longevity with the directors of national intelligence. Uh, well, I think it has improved. And oh, by the way, the first female director of national intelligence. Right now, yeah. Haynes has been appointed by the Biden administration. Yeah. So of course things are improving. A but, lot. But he, he or she who controls the budget has leverage in the federal government. And we tried, we really tried to give the DNI more budget authority uh, than we ultimately uh, ended up with. Uh, I'm, I'm not the first or the last to say legislation is like sausage uh, and you really don't want to see how it's made. It was, it was a tough go. We finally got the, uh, the bill through the House, despite the opposition of the then chairman of the House Armed Services Committee and Vice President Dick Cheney. He was vice president at the time, but we got the bill passed. Then we went to the Senate and there were 300 amendments. <laughs> Try that. Um, but um, uh, we had bipartisan support there too. And ultimately George W. Bush, a Texan supported the bill and he, as president, he had uh, quite a bit of clout and it was a proud day when that bill passed. And you are right that there has been a lot of turnover in the job and it has been a work in progress. I have been saying that it, the DNI is 50% law and 50% leadership and not to knock anybody, everybody tried hard. Uh, but it has been uh, it has been hard to get to a, a place where the coordinating function really works. And uh, just one criticism in the last administration, the Trump administration, near the end, uh, uh, some very talented people were forced out at the top and a director was put in uh, who was not not asked to do what the intelligence community is supposed to do, which is to speak truth to power. That person was asked to make sure that the intelligence community uh, would um, follow uh, what the those in power uh, decided they wanted to do. And so that's why I have what I hope is a cute uh, uh, title, chapter title, um, uh, inverting those things instead of truth to power, it's power to truth. And I, I say, finally, that uh, good intelligence, which is a set of predictions, it's not science, uh, doesn't guarantee good policy uh, made by others in, uh, in, other, in other departments, uh, but bad intelligence often uh, uh, means that the policy will be bad as well. And I think we've seen that movie several times. That last director you referred to was also a Texan, I'm sorry to say, but I won't call his name. You were tactful not to, I won't either, but very happy to have Avril, Avril Haynes as you are. You also say in your book that we need to change our procurement policies, that we just can't have weapon systems that take years and years and years to develop. Uh, would, uh, is, how could that change? Well, uh, some of it, some of our, our weapons or some of our, our, our defense assets uh, do take years to develop, but what I, my, my basic point was we can't keep funding legacy systems that won the Cold War. Uh, actually, the, it wasn't a war, it was a, uh, you know, a war of attrition, but that won the Second World War, let's go there, uh, and were important in the Cold War. Uh, and the reason we keep doing this is uh, that people are dug in, in the Pentagon and in Congress. Uh, uh, and why is that? I call it pet rock protection which is a little harsh, 
And I said, I was a pet rock protector because I represented a district that made um, mo most, I'd say, of our intelligence satellites. And I fought to the death moving the, the facilities out of my district. And I was pretty successful. But my point is, what do we need to protect against current and future threats? That's the right question. And how much does that cost? That's the right question. And I would just argue, and I put, put that in the book, that uh, technology systems, especially cyber, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, space are, are these systems and programs of the future to keep us safe. I remember a book from years ago called The Wild Blue Yonder by Nick Kotz, a journalist. I think it was about the B-52. And it was kept alive. I mean, administration after administration after administration. Uh, amazing. And one reason was almost every congressional district had some part uh, of that plane manufactured there. I guess a lot of them in your district in, uh, in last Los Angeles County of the Pacific Coast. Well, that... You know, that's clever uh, politics by aerospace firms is to spread out and make sure that everyone gets a little piece. Uh, and um, uh, can't say that's wrong. And the B-52 had a storied history, but is the B-52 going to win the next war? Hopefully we won't have a next war, but do you really think so? I don't. How did you come to become the mother of Boeing? <laughs> that's a funny story. Um, uh, so Boeing's satellite manufacturer was in my district. Boeing acquired the satellite portion of Hughes Electronics, uh, which was back in the day when I was elected to Congress in another century, the largest uh, uh, manufacturer uh, in, in California. And, and Hughes split up and Boeing got the satellite piece. And it was based in El Segundo, uh, which is uh, in, in Los Angeles County, part of my district. And there was a federal procurement uh, program that they were involved in with another aerospace firm. At any rate, it went wrong. Uh, the procurement specs kept changing, but also the systems engineering of the program was not adequate uh, by Boeing and by this other manufacturer. And ultimately, we worked it out and the program shrunk uh, and Boeing kept a, a piece of it, but part of it was canceled. And it's not all Boeing's fault, but at that point, I said, I've practiced tough love. I guess that makes me Boeing's mother. And that got traction and it was very funny. And one um, Mother's Day, I got some roses and it said, Happy Mother's Day, Jim. And I, you know, I, don't, I have four children, um, two are male, but no, neither of them is named Jim. So I couldn't figure it out until I realized that he was one of the senior officials of Boeing space program. Well, of course, sounds like Boeing could have used a mother the last few years. Uh, Boeing uh, merged with McDonnell Douglas. Was that in your district? Um, no. Well, McDonnell Douglas was in Maryland. No. No, uh, but, no but uh, yes, that did happen. And no, I wasn't there in uh, recent years. I, and I the issues have, have to do with their civilian program, uh, not their space program. I bring it up because David Gallus said in the New York Times that it was McDonnell Douglas people who came into Boeing who persuaded them that, that the financial part of the business was the thing that really mattered and the engineers were in the way and they were a bother. And so they moved their headquarters from Seattle to Denver. They considered Dallas, but we'd love to have had them here. They wanted to get perspective on their business. And, uh, 
and really think about the stock price. I think that what was going on. And, and it, of course, you know, then when planes started falling from the sky, uh, first in Indonesia, then in Ethiopia with the 737 MAX, it, it became a big problem. And we have Southwest and, and American both based here with CEOs who were very unhappy about the way this was, they bought a lot of those planes. But that was not something you had anything to do with. But Well, no, but you can't hang it all on the, on the airlines and the airplanes. Uh, we have something called the FAA, the Federal, the Federal Aviation Administration. And there were sweetheart arrangements, uh, which I think got in the way too. And okay, maybe blame some of that on industry, but I would blame some of that too on on the government. So hopefully we're in a better place. I, I, as, as someone who wants to fly Boeing planes again, uh, I, I would like you to, do. my grandchildren would, would like to know if we're in a better place. Actually, I hope you got on one tomorrow. Uh, but anyway, uh, what about Afghanistan? Is it going to be in a better place if we leave? Will we be in a better place? What do you think? You were on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, yes, I was. Uh, and um, it's, a, it's a very mixed story. To remind everyone, um, the Russians were in Afghanistan and forced out way back in the day. Uh, and then came 9-11 when uh, many of the people who attacked us, surprised us, uh, were trained in Afghanistan. And uh, a large portion of Al-Qaeda was in Afghanistan. And Congress on a virtually unified basis authorized the use of military force against those who attacked us, mostly in Afghanistan. I voted for that. Only one person voted against it at the time, a woman who still serves in Congress named Barbara Lee from Berkeley, California. But the rest of us were unanimous that that's what we should do. And that is what we should do, what we, what we did do, and we did it very well. But the problem is, was we stayed. Uh, rather than uh, decide that we'd accomplish the mission, uh, we stayed to help improve the government, but we use the military to do that. Uh, and I, I have a uh, whole chapter on how we over, we've over-militarized our response since 9-11, uh, not just in Afghanistan, but elsewhere. And so this mission creep uh, ended up costing trillions of dollars, thousands of American lives, thousands more wounded, thousands and thousands of Afghan lives. And when you look at where we are 20 years later, I agree with President Biden. We have to do something different. He is not saying we are leaving Afghanistan. He's saying we are ending uh, by pulling our troops out, uh, the military mission in Afghanistan. I hope it will go well, but I think this is the least bad alternative we have. And that we really need to focus resources and brain cells elsewhere. And again, we're, we're keeping intelligence resources at the ready. We are. Uh, supporting uh, the NATO training of, of the military in Afghanistan, 300,000 Afghan troops. We will uh, uh, focus on human rights violations of women and girls, uh, and we will do what we can with a coalition to get a, a, uh, a, a <laughs> to develop a, a, an option for Afghans if they want it. Uh, to, to, to live in peace and build a government that reflects all of their interests. I saw some figures yesterday that indicated between 2,500 and 3,500 of our troops will be leaving. I've seen both figures. And about 16,000 contractors, 6,000 of whom are American citizens. Right. Are we overdoing contractors in our military operations? Um, does anybody remember Dwight Eisenhower's farewell 
which said, beware of the military industrial complex. Does anybody at all remember that? Well, oops, he was right. And we have developed this gigantic uh, contractor base, both uh, for intelligence and defense. Uh, some of them are marvelous, but a lot of uh, what we do uh, is uh, basically outside the government proper. And it is much harder to oversee that, much harder to oversee the cost of that, the quality of that. And uh, it also has created, especially in the Intel space, a revolving door where people uh, come at a young age to one of our Intel agencies, let's say the National Security Agency, which is NSA, which is the one that uses technical means, so-called, to uh, listen and, and, and find out uh, plans and intentions of both friends and, and, and foes. Uh, but anyway, they come to NSA, they become highly skilled, and then they leave because they can earn two or three X uh, outside. And so there's this brain drain. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think Eisenhower was prescient here. And you're right. I mean, that's why we have more contractors than actual military troops in Afghanistan. Quite a lot more. And evidently, they're all going to be redeployed somewhere nearby, if they can find a place where they can be hastily returned to Afghanistan if necessary. Well, that may be smart, uh, given the way we're doing this. Uh, again, they're not all military. They're, they're not in the military. Uh, they probably provide logistics support and, and all kinds of other things. For the moment, so far as I know, we're keeping our embassy there. So there are other things for them to be doing. I noticed that the Australians are pulling their embassy out. And I do think uh, security issues are, are now and will be uh, uh, pretty dicey. And we are, have to hope that this 300,000 person uh, army that we have helped train uh, is up to this. And I hope they are. I mean, it's their country that they are fighting to protect. That ought to be a huge motivator. <laughs> Very true. And I wonder about uh, the contractors themselves. I guess this comes about because they lobby heavily uh, the Pentagon for very lucrative contracts. Uh, I guess the Pentagon likes it because then Congress can't really tell where the money's being spent or how much. Is that about the size of it? Well, it might be a little cynical. Uh, it might be, it could I, be. I think there is mutual dependence and has been. I mean, let's remember Eisenhower said this in 19... 58 or nine, uh, that was a few years ago. So habits have developed over 70 years, seven O years um, that are gonna be very hard to break if, if in fact we ever do. You point out that uh, our intelligence community was blindsided in uh, 9-11, you mentioned that at the outset. In the Iraq war, you mentioned that probably. ISIS, the rise of ISIS, the Russian invasion of Crimea. Uh, why, why so many? blunders? Well, again, intelligence is not a science. Uh, it's a set of predictions. And some of these are very hard. Uh, getting inside of countries, getting inside of people's heads, uh, literally to, to understand how they think about things is extremely hard. Plus, there is the rise, you mentioned ISIS, of non-state actors. ISIS is not a state. It's a terror group. And uh, they have, uh, in many cases, as lethal uh, uh, means as others, uh, especially if you want to blow yourself up or you're prepared to blow yourself up to achieve your means, uh, that is, you know, makes it extremely hard uh, to stop someone. And I, I have said, and I think I said it in the book too, 
that we have to be right 100% of the time and they only have to be right once. And so preventing 100% of attacks is, is highly unlikely. President Biden does want to try to turn his attention to China. You mentioned he wants to turn his attention to other priorities, one of them being China and Asia. Uh, to what extent are we going to have to stay focused on the Middle East? Someone said the Middle East, this I, I relate to, I keep repeating it because I love it. Uh, the Middle East is like Hotel California. You can check in anytime you want, but you can never leave. <laughs> and it's there. there's some truth to that. But I think uh, what President Biden is doing is different from his four predecessors, two Democrats and two Republicans. Uh, and in this way, he actually has a foreign policy strategy, which I argue we did not have after the Cold War ended. My point in the book is uh, we thought we won and Russia lost and everybody wanted to be us. And well, oops, we missed the rise of China in the 90s uh, and China didn't want to be us. We missed mostly the rise of terrorism in the 90s and terrorists not only don't want to be us, they want to take us down. Uh, and since then, uh, the world has become much more diffuse, the rise of political populism uh, and multi multipolar. So uh, what are we doing about this? Uh, I, I say our last four presidents haven't had a strategy. What they have done is mostly been tactical. Oops, there's a problem in Israel. We're gonna surge our focus on Israel. There's a problem over here, we're gonna do that. And especially in the Middle East where there are lots of problems. Uh, and they've never had the ability to stand back. So Biden's doing that. And Biden's uh, uh, interim national security strategy, which was announced a couple months ago by uh, Secretary of State Blinken, is about uh, uh, a foreign policy for the middle class, as he calls it, or I would say taking foreign, the foreign out of foreign policy, making it relevant to people. Popular support does matter and needs to matter if we're gonna get Congress back in this game. And what Biden has said is he will focus on uh, the serious threats from China and Russia. Uh, Trump was already doing that, so that's good. Uh, but he'll also focus on uh, domestic terrorism, um, the pandemic, and climate, which are uh, um, very serious threats uh, to America's future. Because if America, if America isn't strong at home, we won't be strong abroad. And I buy into that. So where does the Middle East fit? It fits, but it's not the only focus. And uh, trying to find a way forward for Israel-Palestine that those on the ground support, trying to find a way forward uh, for Afghanistan that those on the, on the ground can defend, uh, get that. Uh, trying to stop uh, needless wars, needless proxy wars like the war in Yemen, check, and trying to make sure that any arms sales uh, we've done a lot of arms sales. They do support domestic jobs, U.S. jobs, so you've got to know that. But to places like Saudi Arabia, where they might be misused, uh, we've got to be careful about that. So I think he's got this, this kind of large uh, uh, canvas there, and he is determined to stay, stay uh, alert, but not to bet our entire foreign policy there. You write in your book about the unitary executive and started under Reagan, uh, really gained ground under George W. Bush. Tell us what that means and how it works. Well, if anyone has seen the uh, movie on uh, Dick Cheney called Vice, 
you really get it in, you know, in, in a more humorous form. But basically what it is, is a, a theory that the Article II branch of government, that's the executive, uh, Congress is the Article I branch of government, and the courts are Article III, and the separation of powers is supposed to be the cooperation and tension among them. But the theory of the unitary executive is that the Article II branch has lots of inherent power because the president is the commander in chief, that's true, of the country. Uh, and he or she, let's dream on, he or she, um, <laughs> he or she, hmm, let me try that again. She or he uh, has uh, the authority to make many, um, I think Dick Cheney would have argued most, foreign policy decisions without consulting Congress. That's what the unitary executive theory is. And I was in Congress when some of those decisions were made and it was very frustrating. And uh, I think two things were lost. First of all, I don't think that's consistent with the constitution, but the other thing is Congress does have smart informed people in it, not, not every person. And certainly the smart ones are in both parties and some of the, mm -hmm. uh, troublemakers uh, or something are in both parties, or some of them are. Uh, but my point is, by failing to leverage what Congress brings, uh, our country loses a lot, including popular support, because it's the people who exercise their views through their members of, of Congress. And finally, I would say, Congress passes the laws, not the executive branch, and Congress provides the funds, not the executive branch. So it is extremely short-sighted and wrong. Uh, to ignore Congress. Well, now I remember there was an authorization of force uh, measure whereby the executive had to come back to Congress if, a, if an operation lasted more than what, 90 days or something like that, am I mistaken? Um, it's sort of, you're conflating a couple of things. Okay. Uh, yeah, there is uh, a, uh, a statute about war where yes, within us, uh, the authorization of our wars where uh, uh, the president can act, but he has to come to Congress within six months. But the authorizations to use military force are basically for shorter term military uh, actions. And I mentioned that we did an AUMF for, uh, uh, for Afghanistan, where we authorized action against those who attacked us, who were mostly in Afghanistan. We then also did one uh, for Iraq, where we authorized military action there. And I, I can tell some funny stories about that. Uh, but but I'm trying to see if I'm in this, I don't know, I might be the person right there. That could be me. Boy, I look a little fierce, don't I? Yikes. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> uh, I don't like that picture. Can we just take that off? Thank you. Um, uh, but um, since those two AUMFs, Congress has never passed another one. And yet we have been involved in 40-0 military actions in 19 countries. And I, a long discussion of that. Why is that? Well, Congress doesn't work very well these days. Uh, if anyone has noticed the, the arguments around this 1-6 commission that are going on today, I don't know if they ever took the vote yet. Did, did, have they taken the vote in the Senate yet? Uh, I know. Okay. Well, anyway, I think most listeners are, are you know, onto that one. And then there are other controversial big ticket items out there. Um, but my point is, um, by failing to, to uh, uh, repeal and replace this 2001 uh, threadbare AUMF, uh, Congress is abdicating its responsibility. 
uh, to oversee and, and authorize these military actions. Congress is still funding them, get this, funding them, but not overseeing them. And that is, uh, to quote uh, Bob Corker, uh, the former Senator from Tennessee, who chaired uh, uh, the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time, irresponsible, irresponsible. And why do they not authorize these things? Well, one, there isn't agreement and there isn't much ability to function. But two, uh, members of Congress don't wanna own the consequences. Let the executive do it. If it goes badly, blame the executive instead of blaming yourself. And uh, I, I argue that the whole business model of Congress has changed to one where uh, people go to Washington uh, wanting to add some value and solve hard problems, many of which are in my book, uh, to one where many people go to Congress to stay, to survive uh, in, in uh, difficult primaries. In many districts, the primary is the election. And to do that, the best way to do that is to blame the other side for not solving the problem. Because if you work with the other side, you are bipartisan. And that gives ground to somebody from uh, the, the more extreme uh, part of either party to attack you and say, you're not a real, pick one, Republican or Democrat, uh, because you're working with the other side. And I think that's tragic because these hard problems are the ones that if, that will determine whether our country is safe or isn't. Well, you're right. I've been thinking maybe that uh, the work of Congress should be turned over to artificial intelligence. I mean, get those algorithms <laughs> no. going and, and get no, them to no, come no, up with no, laws. No. But we have some questions from uh, those who are with us today. Ray Termini, here, here is his question. Is the congressional committee system too political? Are committee chairs often appointed based upon political policy rather than merit and proven expertise? Really good question. Uh, back in the day, uh, especially when I was a staffer in the Senate in the 70s, um, the committee appointments were made pretty much on merit. And what happened was if you got on the Armed Services Committee or pick one, you would become expert in the, uh, in the material of the committee. And the committee would operate according to what's called regular order. That means a bill is introduced, let's say a bill to provide more resources and some strategy on cyber defense. Uh, that would go to the Armed Services Committee, might now go to the Homeland Security Committee. I don't, I'm not quite sure, but anyway, it would go somewhere. And that committee, first a subcommittee would hold hearings, invite outside witnesses, then the full committee uh, would so-called mark up the bill and report it to the floor of the House or Senate. And when it was debated on the floor, the members of the committee who knew a lot about the bill would be the ones to argue uh, for the bill, or in some cases against the bill, and the best informed folks would help drive the decision about the bill. Now, uh, oops, uh, you're right, the questioner, uh, some of the appointments to committees, especially intelligence committees, where we shouldn't have this happening, are based on uh, political considerations uh, and um, a lot of the regular order doesn't exist, and much of what's voted on on the floor, especially of the House, isn't really uh, what the committee considered. It's, it's more what the leadership uh, of either side thinks is the better approach, and often uh, it's not, not necessarily the better approach for the country, it's the better approach for the party. 
and that part, you know, the dueling press releases is just, it drives me wild. I just think, uh, you know, country over party. I, you know, I, I think that'll be, those will be my last words. I'm not planning to leave this mortal coil tomorrow, but country over party, please, please, please. Couldn't agree more. This question, two questions from Vina. First, do you support keeping the filibuster? Second, how has Congress changed since you left office? Any advice on how to reduce partisanship? Lots of luck with that. How much time do you have for that one? Um, the filibuster has been a tool that worked until the last period. I don't know what the number of years is. Of course, I always say Congress was perfect until I left in 2011 and then it fell apart. So I'm sure the filibuster was perfect until I left. Uh, but it is now abused and it is a way basically to stop legislation. Do I think it should be thrown out? I hope not. I'm very uh, interested in this notion of the talking filibuster. Back in the day, and I remember this with the civil rights uh, wars uh, in the 70s, if you wanted to filibuster something, you had to be there and stand there uh, and not run off even for, you know, uh, uh, bodily bodily reasons, unless someone replaced you, uh, for 24 hours or whatever it took to argue your side of the case. I think that would be good to do. I think people need skin in the game if they're going to uh, try to block something. Uh, I also hope, you know, we just talked about country over party, that some of these issues, uh, to me, the 1-6 commission modeled very closely after the 9-11 commission is an issue of country over party. And the 9-11 commission, which I voted for, and which my predecessor, Lee Hamilton, predecessor at Wilson Center, uh, co-chaired, uh, was one of those country over party votes. Not every vote is. So I'm for maybe what I would call a slightly modified filibuster. That would be my first choice. Uh, on how do you make Congress work again? <sighs> well, um, uh, I, some moves, uh, at least, uh, are pretty obvious to me. In California, again, I'm from California and you're not, uh, but in California, we have citizen commissions draw the congressional lines. They are not drawn by whoever the governor is in whatever party. Uh, that is much less political. And we actually had a, an incident about six years ago where two Democrats ended up running against each other because one district was collapsed in the other into the other one. It was called Berman versus Sherman. And Howard Berman had been the chair of the uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee a very respected senior member, but his district was collapsed into the district of Brad Sherman. And Sherman ended up winning uh, because his local voters supported him. Um, okay, well, that happened, uh, but it happened fairly. Uh, so there, that's one thing. In California, also, we have what we call a jungle primary, which means instead of separate ones, everybody's on the same primary list. And if, until you get a majority, you are not the winner. So uh, at the end of a, uh, of a race, there could be two people um, below the majority and the runoff is those two people, whether they're from the same party or not. And I think these things uh, may, may scare a few folks, but I think they end up uh, producing uh, candidates who are willing to listen to the other side and to pitch to the other side. This is from Caroline Fagman. Many have commented on the decision to invade Iraq in 2003 as hindsight can be 2020. Do you regret the decision and can you talk about the intelligence that led to it? Okay, so I think at the front of one of my chapters, and certainly a lot of people have noticed this in the book, I talk about how 
uh, I, as the senior Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, read everything. I read, of course, the National Intelligence Estimate, which predicted uh, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and was prepared to use them against us, as, as in U.S. Uh, I read that. I read the supporting material. I traveled to England, which has uh, very capable intel agencies. I traveled to the Middle East, uh, everywhere, and formed my conclusion that the predictions were right and was prepared to vote for the AUMF on Iraq. And I came home that night and was talking to my uh, late, uh, very interesting business mogul husband named Sidney Harmon. I said, Sidney, I've decided to vote for the war in Iraq. And he looked at me and he said, you're gonna do what? And I said, I'm voting for it. I've read everything. Uh, and I'm, I've concluded that we're at risk and I need to vote for this. And he said, uh, I hope this is okay for your audiences. He said, that's a lot of crap. And I remember being startled. And he said, you'll see. And obviously he had no special information. He had his intuition. But as it turns out, hmm, uh, the intelligence was wrong. The sources weren't properly vetted. Saddam Hussein did not have WMD. I mean, yes, he had used chemical weapons against his own people a decade before. Yes, he was a really bad guy. Uh, but it turned out even his own people were hoodwinking him. And what I say about that, uh, obviously hindsight is better, as you said, Lee, is uh, the intelligence was wrong. The war based on the intelligence was wrong. And I was wrong. And I think we have paid an enormous price for that. And your husband was right. Well, I don't have to go that far, do I? <laughs> no, certainly not. This is from Don Llewellyn. As a computer guy, I've been reading a lot about cyber crime and cyber war. You only mentioned that in, pa that in passing. Are we paying enough attention worldwide to this very serious threat? Uh, no, we're not paying enough attention. I did mention it just a, you know, a few questions back in terms of where to focus our defense resources. Uh, but uh, as I was writing the book, um, some of these new uh, ransomware and cyber attacks hadn't happened yet, not to excuse me, but it's a huge issue. Uh, and um, the ransomware is a problem for the world. Apparently, the only place not attacked is any place using the Cyrillic al alphabet. That's the Russian alphabet. And many of these folks, they're, they're in criminal syndicates, they're not governments, but many of these folks reside in Eastern Europe and Russia, oops, including the folks who just did this attack on our, on our fuel resources on the East Coast. Uh, so uh, what, what to do about this? We have to get better at preventing attacks. We also have to connect closely, and Biden's trying to do this, the private and public sectors. Biden just issued, issued an executive order in which he says that any private firm doing business with the government has to inform the government immediately uh, if it is the subject of a ransomware attack. And the Department of Health, uh, uh, Department of Health the, the Department of Homeland Security uh, just issued a, a further directive about this uh, so that the government does engage because let's, let's assume uh, these attacks don't have to be on one firm only. In the case of the Colonial Pipeline uh, ransomware attack, um, their IT systems were basically captured. These are extortions. And they said, we won't give you back your IT system unless you uh, pay us money, which sadly turned out to happen. Uh, but at any rate, I think Colonial Pipeline, as a matter of prudence, turned off, uh, not that they were attacked, 
the fuel distribution system that they had. And that is what hurt all the rest of us. Uh, and I, I can't say, in, you know, hindsight's always better whether they needed to do that or they didn't need to do that. But it was a colossally uh, painful attack. And one other thing, there's a suggestion, I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but maybe the questioner knows more than I do, that we ought to uh, make, put strict limitations on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because those are usually how these payments are demanded and made. This is from Steve Cotton. Jane, we have a very serious problem on the southern border. We have non-Mexicans coming in from all kinds of countries, and some of them have been Muslims, and two even were found to be on the watch no-fly list. Terrorists are using the cartel's routes to infiltrate potential terrorists into the country. What is your assessment of the seriousness of this problem? I think the, the southern border issues are uh, one of those uh, you know, hard national security problems, and we don't have it right. So I, I, I don't argue that there, to some extent, uh, but I haven't heard to a large extent. I'm not saying that terrorists aren't you know, infiltrating our country, but I don't think the southern border is uh, where, they're, uh, where we are most at risk for that problem. But we are at risk. I mean, this whole pathetic issue of little kids uh, coming over the border solo and being dropped over the fence. I mean, anybody's heart would break. And, you know, you understand that in many cases, uh, th their families are desperate. And I, I, I actually think that uh, Donald Trump started on the right track uh, with Mike Pence and others having a meeting in Miami to provide uh, resources to Central America to stop the push factor. Uh, that gets a lot of these people moving through Mexico. These are not the terrorists, but these are people whom the coyotes also exploit. Um, but they didn't follow through on that. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to do more. Uh, what do I think we need? We need comprehensive immigration reform. We need a strong border. We need to fund the resources uh, to keep people out who shouldn't be coming here and to let people in who should be coming here. I'm, you know, I'm the daughter of immigrants. I don't think Im immigration has hurt our country. Done right, I think it has helped our country. And, you know, again, back to California, so many of our very creative CEOs are from somewhere else. And Steve Jobs, for example, was the adopted, was the actual son of a Syrian refugee and the adopted son of, of, of others. And so, you know, brain cells are not confined to people born to, pick one, you know, traditional, uh, whatever, whatever category you want to defend. And they're not. And there are talented people everywhere. And we should harness the talent of the world that wants to help us. So that's what I'm saying. But I agree. I agree that we don't have it right. Well, Jane, uh, California is a great state. You may know that some are coming from California to Texas. Why don't you move to Texas? We would love a chance to vote for you for anything. Uh, well, you know, maybe some of your, your the folks won't agree okay. with that. Okay. We just sent you uh, uh, Elon Musk, or he sent himself. That's right. Well, you so, you yeah. have bias. That's true. Well, thank you so much. And now back to Ray Germini. I'm Ray Termini, a member of the American Jewish Committee and the World Affairs Council. On behalf of the International Perspective Series, I would like to give our special thanks to Jane Harmon and Lee Collum for a great discussion. We appreciate your dedicating the time to be with us this afternoon and the insightful questions and thorough answers that have made 
the conversation so engaging. We at IPS strive to invite the very best speakers on foreign policy and national security. Congresswoman Jane Harmon has exceeded our expectations today. With her broad background in US intelligence, military and homeland security, she has provided a knowledgeable overview of our national security issues. Although her book was just published last week, I've already read it and highly recommend it. And my wife recommends the audio version, which is read by the author herself. In a recent interview, Congresswoman Harmon was referred to as a recovering Congresswoman, a recovering lawyer, a recovering think tank leader, and now a recovering author. We wish her well as she carries forth the torch to her next pre-adventure, pre-recovery adventure. Thanks to the DFW World Affairs Council and AJC Dallas for their collaboration in IPS and to the generous sponsors at the international law firm of Haynes and Boone for their support. As Liz mentioned at the beginning of the program, this was the final program in our 2021 International Perspective Series. We truly hope that you enjoyed this year's lineup and we look forward to gathering in the spring in person for IPS 2022. Thank you for joining us and have a good afternoon and a happy Memorial Day weekend.